Hey, everybody. Uh, so this is week four, I think, in the Gospel of Mark. And um, the reason we read all of that from um, chapter 2, 13 to 3, 23, is because um, I think that's the next section in Mark, logically. And um, so I'm going to try to do it in two sermons. I'm going to do these three episodes with Jesus first that are bookended by two miracles in which he calls himself the Son of Man. And then he won't call himself the Son of Man until after chapter 8, verse 30, where Peter finally makes his confession that he's the Christ. And then he starts teaching about what kind of Christ he is, that he's the dying kind. Okay? So, th- so these three episodes, bookended by two miracles in which he calls himself the Son of Man, are critically important for Jesus, understanding Jesus' method. But Jesus' method is all about his identity, and that's what these passages are about. And then, after that... There's five reactions, right? The Pharisees and the Herodians want to kill him. His family wants to come take charge of him. People from seven different places come and crowd him, right? The Sadducees say, so there's these reactions. So we'll do the episodes this week. We'll do the reactions next week. Now, let me, let me try to pique your interest in this passage. If I, now, next week, Campus Crusade, well, not Campus Crusade, the um, Badger Catholics, but also Campus Crusade partnering with them, are going to do a debate on campus Thursday night, 7 to 9. Um, the question is going to be, is God the problem? Right? Is religion bad for us, basically? And the debaters are going to be um, Madison's own Dan Barker, and um, famous and infamous, depending on your position, and Denise D'Souza, who is a, a well-known writer um, in this area. And his, his book, actually, What's So Great About Christianity, is probably the best single volume on this question. I've, I, I was going to do two sermons on this in September, right when students came back to school, and I just decided that was a bad idea. But in preparation for that and some other talks I've done, I've read, I've read about five in the last year on this issue. Is, has Christianity been good for the world? Is God bad for us? Is religion, you know what I mean, that whole gig that's going on right now? And D'Souza's book, What's So Great About Christianity? By far the best single book. So if you've got a friend struggling with that, you know you're going to be answering that at work, at school, in lecture halls, etc. Um, D'Souza's book really is the best one that I can find right now. And eventually I will do two or three weeks on that question um, when I, after I learn how to preach. Um, but if I told you that these two guys, Denise D'Souza and Dan Barker, who are vehemently opposed to each other, um, were, had met some guy and they had to- they've become best friends and they were totally advocating for the same thing now, would you be interested in all about who they met and what they were now advocating for? I mean, I would be. I'd be like... Denise D'Souza and Dan Barker agree on something because they met some guy? I want to know who this guy is, right? Or what if I told you that Steve Jobs and Bill Gates had joined forces? I will admit that Steve Jobs looks a little more evil in that picture. But it's just the picture, you know, I tried to find, he looks intelligent too. Um, if, If they had joined forces because they were going to market attack and try to put out of business a new entrepreneur in his company. Now, if Microsoft and Apple came together for such a purpose, wouldn't you want to know who the young entrepreneur was and what his business was, right? I mean, I would. I would think that would be, be like, what, what's going on? But here's what I have to tell you. That's exactly what happens in this passage. It's exactly what happens in this passage. When Jesus gets done talking about the Sabbath after the third episode... It says that, in verse, in 3, 6, says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, if you know who the Pharisees are, the Pharisees are the very conservative religious sect of rabbinical laws. The Herodians are the people who like Herod. 
Okay? Herod was the guy who was so wicked that people, people said it would be better to be Herod's dog than his son because he killed two of them. Right? I mean, this is a guy, so, he was a guy put in charge by the Romans. He was a half-breed. The Jews hated him. The Pharisees hated Herod. And the Herodians, well, they got their name from him. They liked him. And these guys got together. They were like, we can, we can work together. Because they had a common, intense hatred. This new guy, Jesus. And then in 3.18, we're just finding out who the apostles are. But one of the things that we pass over kind of quickly is that the fourth person mentioned in 3.18 is Matthew. Now, Matthew is Levi. They're the same guy. We know that by the way Matthew denotes them. And it says in Matthew that, that Matthew was a tax collector. Now, the last guy mentioned is Simon the Zealot. Now, I don't know if you know the Zealot. The Zealots would, would have been categorized under the Bush administration as a terror group, okay? I mean, these are people that, who hated the Romans. They were sort of Zionistic Jews, and they were all about getting enough people together to create some riot, to try to make trouble for the Romans, to try to get their Jewish country back, okay? That's who the Zealots were. Now, the, a tax collector, as I'll go into a little bit more in a minute, was by definition a Jew who'd become a traitor to the Romans in order to make a bunch of money. That's what a tax collector was. So, it's essentially somebody who betrayed their country to, to go along with the invading country so that they could use the sword of the invading, invading country to line their own pockets. Okay? So, would you normally think a tax collector and a zealot would get along? Not a likely idea, right? It's not a likely idea. It's like getting Al Sharpton and Newt Gingrich on your staff. It's just not going to happen, okay? So, but that's right there. And it's just, it's, Mark just tells us, yeah, you know, Jesus had these apostles, and one of them, you know, was a zealot, one of them was a tax collector. And you're like, what? <laughs> Seriously? I mean, there's something about Jesus that gets people who hate each other to team up to kill him and people who hate each other to team up to follow him. The reason why I think that's really important, it's because in these passages, I think it's really important that we focus primarily on Jesus' identity, not on his methods. If you go to most evangelical churches, you will hear a very good sermon on this passage about how Jesus, about Jesus' methods of ministry, right? right? What are Jesus' methods of ministry? He gets around sinners, right? He gets around people far from God, and he loves them, and he talks to them about himself, and so on. And you can get a great and very true, and, and in many cases, very appropriate message about Jesus' methods. I'm not making fun of anybody who does that. That's one way to go when you preach through these passages. However, if we look at what Mark is doing, if I submit myself not to my agenda for this church, but if I submit myself to what I think Mark is doing in his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I don't think he's that interested in getting us to follow Jesus' methods in the first place. I think he's interested in getting us to believe in Jesus' identity, and out of that will flow a natural acceptance of his methods that are plainly written here that you don't need me to expound on. Now, the way this lays out is there's two, there are two miracles, right? In chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, is the paralytic guy who gets lowered through the ceiling. Remember that? I preached on that like three weeks ago. And they lower him down, and, he, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Remember that? And, and the, everybody starts thinking in their mind. They're like, eh, I don't know about this guy. That's kind of blasphemy, isn't it? And then he says, so that you'll know that the who? Son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He points again. He says, get up and walk, right? 
So the point of the miracle is so that everybody would recognize that this Son of Man has the authority, the perfect right to say, your sins are forgiven. Now, now there's, then there's three more episodes, and the third episode ends with Jesus saying what? The who is Lord of the Sabbath? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then what does he say? He turns to the guy in the synagogue with the shriveled up hand on the Sabbath day, right? And what does he say? Stretch your hand out, and he heals the guy, right? So you've got two healing miracles of people who are in paralysis, right? Unhealable folks. And, I mean, in some ways, people, we can't heal these things today. Right? 2,000 years, we can't heal these things today. And, and he heals these people, and in both cases, what is the emphasis? The emphasis, ooh, that's pretty cool, Jesus can heal people. No, in both cases, the emphasis is what? Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, to be Lord of the Sabbath, to make these identity claims that he's making. So what are the three identity claims that he's making? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Then next week we'll talk about the five reactions to these identity claims. <coughs> okay. In case you didn't get this from what I said before, Mark's gospel splits into two parts, okay? 1, 1 through 8, 30 is, is finding out that Jesus is Messiah. He's the king. He's the one who's to come. 831 through the end of chapter 16 is what kind of Messiah he is. Mark's gospel splits very neatly into two parts. Chapters 1 through 8 is when you'll find all the secretive language, right? He won't let demons say. He heals a leper and he says, don't tell anybody. It's, it's what Bible scholars call the messianic secret. And this is important because in chapter 4, Jesus is going to say something very offensive. We're going to get to that in three or four weeks. He's going to say something very offensive. And if you don't understand that he's still keeping the messianic secret at that point, you're going to get real scandalized by it. But if you realize the whole point is to put the parable out there, but not the interpretation of it until he makes himself known, then you'll go, oh, that kind of makes sense. So you've got to know the breakdown. It's important. And then what I just said, okay. So the first is Jesus claims that he is the doctor of scandalous grace. Now, we evangelicals and lots of other people have felt like using the word scandalous is real cheeky and, you know, oh, isn't that a scandalous? People get, that'll, but we've now we've used it so much, nobody gets to rise out of it anymore. But the point is that's exactly the word we should be using for what Jesus does in this passage. Exactly the word we should be using. Um, you, you see, in the passage before, Jesus says he has the right to forgive sins, right? His right to forgive sins. That's fantastic, right? But here's the, here's the thing. A lot of religious people think it's perfectly fine that Jesus has the right to forgive sins, but they don't think he should be interested in real sinners. You see? So Jesus has to take this a step further. So he just said, listen, I have come and I have the authority to forgive sins. Repent and believe the gospel, right? Chapter 1, verse 14. And so now he, everybody's like, okay, so he says he can forgive sins. But there's no sense in which you know the paralytic guy was particularly sinful. He's just paralyzed, right? So now Jesus is walking along and he runs into this guy, Levi, who apparently is not following him, right? He didn't look into the crowd that was following him and say, hey, you, Levi, yeah, you follow me. No, he walks up to the guy's tax booth, right? And he says, come follow me. And Levi gets up and he follows him. So he, he, doesn't, he doesn't just call the sinner who comes to him. He goes out and finds the sinner who is busy sinning. He, I mean, it was, he, was, he was tax collecting. <laughs> like that's, he was in the middle of doing it. That's like walking in on a prostitute and saying, hey, Jesus loves you. I mean, it's a little awkward. 
And the thing is, Levi does. He gets up and he follows him and then he throws this big party apparently. Matthew 9, 9 and following tells us more about it where he invites all these other sinners. Because guess who sinners know? Mostly <laughs> sinners. And so he invites all these sinners. So all these tax, all his tax collector buddies come over there because nobody else will speak to them. They're tax collectors. So he invites all his tax collector buddies over there and then it's not just Jesus that goes over and has this like clandestine Alpha course. Like, he and all his disciples go over there. So you've got all these people who are following Jesus, and they're, some of them are pretty respectable folks, probably, and they're like, okay, so what are we doing now, Jesus? We're going to have dinner where? With who? Really? Are there going to be two different rooms, two different tables? See, it's... Now, here's one of the things we have to get, is that there is a reason why all throughout the Gospels we get tax collector over and over again. Okay, it's really important we understand a tax collector because otherwise you'll read in um, you'll read in Matthew later on. You know the parable where the, the Pharisee comes in and says, "God, I thank you that I'm very holy and I tithe and that I am very good." And then he said, "Over here, there's a tax collector who beats his chest and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner.'" And then Jesus says, who goes away justified before God, right? And it's the tax collector. And you go, oh, okay. But you're really picturing an IRS agent, aren't you? I mean, you, I mean you, and so we think we understand the biblical talk about tax collectors because we know we don't like tax collectors, right? In your list of the top things you hope that doesn't happen the next calendar year, probably being audited in depth by the IRS is one of the things you're hoping isn't going to happen. Everybody knows it's uncomfortable. Um, the IRS, they get battle pay. Did you know this? They get pay like they're a soldier in battle. In relationship to, I think it's, it may just be in relationship to the retirement account, but I, I talked to the guy who, and whose dad got that started for the IRS. Why? Because they have to go to battle every time they try to collect taxes, but nobody likes them, right? So we think, oh, they didn't like tax collectors, we don't like tax collectors. No, 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 no. It's totally wrong. You see, because we don't like tax collectors a little, we let the whole thing pass over us because we assume we understand. That's like saying because, you know, you served in a soup kitchen when you were in college, you understand what it's like to be a black kid in South Harlem. That's not true. It's not true, right? What we need to understand is that tax collectors are selected in the Bible as the sinner du jour because they were the worst sinner anybody could possibly think of. Most people have in their head some kind of sin that when someone commits it, they leave the status of human being and they enter the status of monster. Almost everybody has that category. What's yours? Right? Usually it's, a lot of people go to child molester on this one. Right? Or, you know, somebody who will blow up someone with a grenade. Or that everybody has some, there's some category where you go like, if somebody does that, they're no longer, they're no longer a person. Because human, a human being would never do that. Let me just let you in on a little secret, okay? If you don't know this already. You should know this already. But if you don't know this already, there is nothing a human being won't do. There's nothing a human being won't do. There's nothing that you are not capable of. If you make the right kind of decisions in the right situations for the right length of time in the right ways, you could get anywhere. That's one of the reasons why wisdom is so important. Why seeking after holiness is so important. So that you go in the other direction instead of not that direction. But the point is, a human being, you could... I mean, if, if you watch a Dateline... You know, remember those Dateline specials where the guy... Um, 
there's like the super self-righteous Dateline guy, and he has people pretend they're like 14-year-olds online, and like the sex offender like chats with them, and they meet at this house, and he's like, hi, you're really on Dateline. And he's like, and then he does like a, his self-righteous gig for like 20 minutes on the guy while they're cuffing him and, and carrying him away, right? And I always thought, you know, good for you. Good for you for catching a child predator. Good job. We, let's just try to catch a bunch of them. I think that'd be great. But it bothered, the, the whole like, you're a monster thing bothered me. The reason tax collectors have such a prominent place in the Bible, particularly in the Gospels, the reason Jesus is referring to them over and over and over again is because they are the monster person in the Bible. They are the monster person. They are the person who is no longer human in the eyes of the public. That is why he selects them. And he says, I have come for them. I've come for them. Now think about that. I mean, they were so hated that um, in the... In the, in the uh, the Jews had all kinds of writings about that you could lie to them, like it was okay to lie to a tax collector. Like the rabbis all agreed it's okay to lie to a tax collector because they're, I mean, they're just not even human. Um, it was believed that if a tax collector touched your house or anything in it, your whole house and everybody in it would become uh, immediately ceremonially unclean. Seriously. Um, they could not be a judge in any Jewish case, even if they were a Jew. And the reason for this is that their whole profession, by its very nature, was extortion. The, the, everything they did was extortion. Because, you see, um, the, the Romans could tax collect things that were clearly objective. For example, they could tax your land. So if you lived under the Roman government, they would tax your land directly because everybody knew how much land they had. That was public, right? But stuff like on sales and things like that, before computers, that was a lot harder to get a good tax feel for it. So here's what they would do. They would bid it out to locals. So the Romans wouldn't collect any tax. They would bid out to local Jews the right to tax the people who lived around them. And so... It would naturally draw the worst of the worst. People who would say, how much can I shake down people for? What's my margin? Then how much should I bid? And so the whole thing was set up to maximize Roman revenue, but also, unfortunately, to pull in the worst of the worst of people and give them the right to, to engage in all kinds of extortion under the right of the Roman sword against everybody they lived with. So to be a tax collector was a little like being <clears throat> a Jew in, the, in a Nazi ghetto who started working for the SS. It was a little like that. It was, it was, it was to be inhuman. It was to have no decency. <coughs> It was to think only of yourself, to line your pockets to wealth on the skin and blood of your own race and countrymen for the sake of the unclean, pagan, Gentile force from the outside who was destroying everything God had created your people to be. That's what it meant to be a tax collector. And in that sense, if Jesus, Jesus could not have a... If, Jesus could not have chosen to have a big dinner with a bunch of hookers because they would have been too good to make his point. That's what I'm saying. And so Jesus has this dinner with all these tax collectors. And so you have to understand, like, we just blow off Pharisees like they're a bunch of hypocritical idiots. Oh, Pharisees. Ugh. Of course they ask the question. Of course they ask. 
No, no, Pharisees were very, most of them I think very sincere, though pretty misguided, religious people. Jesus is having dinner with this kind of a person. And they're, they're trying, to, like, trying to figure out what the heck is going on with that. So they say, why do you eat? And you have to understand, in the ancient world, who you ate with was the most sacred thing in your daily life. In fact, Tim Keller said one time, he said, you will, you will, you will not only be like the people who you're around, more specifically, you will become like the people you eat with. Which I think is true, because that's the, mo- that's the inner circle, who we eat with regularly. And Jesus is, and the, the word used for how Jesus was eating, it says that he was reclining at the table, which is really ceremonial feast language for, he wasn't just having a power lunch with people he was going to tell they ought to turn or burn. Jesus was like laying on a couch, leisurely enjoying an evening with these people. Now, if you can be scandalized, that ought to scandalize you. And so they come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, how do you, what the heck? And he says, listen, I do not obey your limits on what sinners I should be interested in. I just don't. When I, I did not come as the judge right now. I came as the doctor. And what you need to understand is most of the people who are sick are also wicked. And if we only treat the people who are sick and good, then we're no use as doctors. It's, it's like doctors setting up their practice at the health club. Like, what good are you? Right? And so what he's saying is he's saying, listen, I have come to forgive sin. Guess who? Who do you think I'm going to hang around with? I, I just told you, I came, I'm the son of man, I came, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm, that's what I'm here to do. Doesn't it make sense that I would find the biggest piles of it possible and work there? Right? Your, your logic is wrong, right? And so these people are saying, well, what's the right religious behavior? Jesus is saying, well, the right religious behavior for me, who's trying, who's, a person who's trying to help forgive sin, is to get around sinners. And you have to understand the, the claim here. The claim is pretty profound. He's saying he is, what we, and we've come up with this phrase in Christianity, the great physician. He is the doctor. He's come to be the doctor, not the judge. In Matthew, it says that Jesus said right before this quote, he said, go and find out what I meant when I inspired the biblical writer to say, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Alexei's grandfather took a trip to Israel before he passed away. And um, he was a a donor to one of the Jewish hospitals um, outside of Jerusalem. It might have been inside Jerusalem. And they took him through this incredibly state-of-the-art operating facility. It was specifically designed for trauma surgeries that were, that were terror-induced traumas, right? So they focused on, like, bomb injuries and shootings and so on. And it was, like, plexiglass and computers. It was just, it was more advanced than anything he'd ever seen in New York City or anything like that. It was incredible. And they said, as far as they knew, every single piece of equipment in the entire operating room was the state-of-the-art thing in the world. In the world. And then this is what he said. He said, and whenever there's a bombing, either here or across the border in Palestine... We treat everybody. And we treat every, the, the order we treat them in is in order of the severity of their injury. 
There is no distinction made to their race, their class, whether they were the bomber himself. No distinction is made. We, we pull in whoever's alive, we treat in order the severity of their injuries. And if a Jew gets treated last and a Palestinian gets treated first, that's just the way it goes. And they were all Jewish doctors, all Jewish nurses, all Israeli citizens. But they had made a commitment that this is what humanity is. This is what the people of God are meant to do. This is what it means to be civilized. This is what medicine is supposed to mean. And Jesus is saying, I'm better than that. That is a weak illustration, as amazing as it is, of what I've come to do. I am the great healer. Right? That's a big claim. Probably should have preached three sermons on these three stories. The second is, and this will be quick, is Jesus is the groom around which everything celebrates. Jesus is the center of the universe's party. He is the proper focus of all rejoicing and happiness. Now, a lot of us have been in traditions or have come through traditions or have ourselves let come through our mouths the idea that the thing we were doing that we liked should overcome the thing older people were doing or other people were doing that they liked by quoting the passage, well, you know, you don't put new wine in old white skins. Oh, those hymns. They're just old wineskins and we're just new wine. What can we do? Hmm. Right? I mean, you name it, but there's lots of things like that. But just read the passage. That has nothing to do with what it's about. Jesus, Jesus is saying, which is a fact, old wineskins are perfectly useful. They're perfectly useful. You just don't put the new wine in it when it's new. You wait till that wine ages, and then you put it in an older wineskin so, so that the wine isn't still expanding. And then you use the old wineskin with the new aged wine. It's fine. You just don't put it in there first because the wine is still expanding. Why? Because in terms of how wine is made, that would be inappropriate. That would be an inappropriate use of the tool that you've got. And so Jesus here is talking about spiritual disciplines First and foremost, the spiritual discipline of fasting, which of course none of us do. And there's a situation in which John, John's the, John's the good guy, right? John, Jesus said, nobody has born, been born out of any uterus better than this guy. Right? Jesus said that. So John's disciples are fasting, right? And the Pharisees, their disciples are fasting. And Jesus' disciples are feasting with tax collectors. <laughs> this could precipitate a question. And so they go... Jesus. And it actually says in Matthew's gospel that it's John's disciples that ask the question. And they go, Jesus, so John's disciples are fasting, and the Pharisees' disciples are fasting, but, but your disciples aren't exactly fasting. <laughs> what can we do about this? And Jesus says, basically, how appropriate, how appropriate is it to fast at a wedding? It's essentially the question he asks. Do, do you think that you would be pleasing the groom if he came into his wedding banquet? This big reception that he spent all this money and made all this preparation so that it would be amazing for everyone to celebrate his great wedding with his bride. And for you to say, in honor of you, I shall eat nothing. 
It's, right, so that's not a compliment, right? That's an insult. And Jesus begins to already, he already predicts his death, doesn't he, in this passage. It's just, it's a little tiny shadow. He says, listen, the time's going to come soon enough when the appropriate thing to do is to discipline ourselves. A, a, a new age of spiritual discipline is coming very soon. But it's not, it's not right now. Right now is, a, is this moment of rejoicing because the groom has come. And I'll be taken away again, and I'm going to come back again. But, but there's a moment right here, right now, where I'm here forgiving sins and loving tax collectors and, <laughs> and giving people rest and saving and healing. And this is, do you not realize this is a reception? Do you not realize we're having a party? Do you not realize that everything bad about life is being pushed back and something good is happening? Are you incapable of happiness? <coughs> Do you, not, do you not realize that these disciplines that built into fasting is the, is the need for discipline because you're in a time of mourning? You're in a time of fighting. I mean, why do we fast? We fast because we're fighting with our bodies. Because our flesh wants to be sinful, and it wants to be gluttonous, and it wants to be adulterous, and it wants to be these things. And we say, we fight our body, we say no through these disciplines because right now we're in a time of fighting. And Jesus is like, Right now, we're not. This is a party. Don't fast. Eat. Drink. Alcohol. <laughs> I mean, don't get drunk, but you know. And you see, you see what he's saying? And so he's like, you have to understand, whenever you want to engage in a spiritual discipline, the first question you've got to ask is, is it appropriate? And in what way am I living out this discipline in relationship to the gospel? Is it part of the gospel? Or am I just doing some discipline that I read a verse about somewhere, and I'm really doing the discipline for me? I think that fasting is about me. I think that praying is about me. I think, I mean, how many times have you heard the reason you forgive somebody is so you can be set free? That's not right. You don't forgive somebody so that you can set free. You forgive somebody because you are a dirty, rotten sinner, and there's 100,000 people in your life that you've bumped into who need to forgive you because you stink, and you're hoping they'll forgive you, and your Father in Heaven said, listen, I'm a forgiver, and one of the stipulations of forgiveness is that you forgive, because you have no right to hold a grudge on anybody for anything, and I eat with tax collectors, I know things. You forgive, Jesus said, so, so your Father in Heaven may forgive you. You forgive because you must forgive, because that is the appropriate and right thing to do, standing before a mighty, holy God who forgives you. Now, the result of that will be, the result of that will be, if you do the right thing for the right reason, the result will be freedom for you. Yeah, that's true. But that is not why you forgive. Because if you forgive to free yourself, you'll never really forgive, and then you won't feel free. And then you'll wonder why it didn't work. Now, my thrilling conclusion in relationship to the Sabbath isn't going to happen this week. It's going to happen next week. So let's just meditate for a second here on these first two. If Jesus will eat with tax collectors, he will eat with anybody. He'll eat with anybody. Jesus is interested in saving everybody. The doctor is interested in sick people. 
okay? And one of the things that he says is, he says, I didn't come to call the righteous. Now that is snide. That's not literal, right? He's saying, I didn't come to call people who, who are righteous like you. Why? Because guess who never goes to the doctor? People who will not admit they're sick, right? They'll never go to the doctor. And so the, the doctor, in this case, went out and find, found Levi, right? He makes house, this guy makes house calls. This guy makes IRS cubicle calls. Okay, I mean, this is a real doctor. What that means is, is that the, the people that you don't count as human, he counts as human beings. Okay, he counts um, convicts, murderers, child molesters. He counts them as human beings that he died for. The people who have hurt you very deeply, your own father, mother, um, the people who stole your money and your business venture, the pe- he, Jesus um, is their physician. He is their doctor as well as yours. He loves them. He, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost, that which was sick. And yes, and therefore, that who is, he who is wicked. Right? And one of the things he's saying is, is he's, he comes and he says, listen, what you need to understand is you may not like that, but that is a reason to celebrate, not to get offended. He said, this is a party. I didn't, I didn't give you commands so that you could suffer under them and I could sit like a taskmaster and go, well, they're working hard. No, he said, I have, I have created this celebration. I've come so that there'd be joy, hope, life. And Jesus, by being the great physician, has contracted to give everybody a wedding invitation. I mean, he's, he's invited you to the greater feast that is coming. And he has invited you to be forgiven of your sins because the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And he's invited you to respond to him and to, be, to belong to this bridegroom, to be part of this feast, to be the one who he has chosen and marked with his love. Because what we're going to find out later in the Bible is that you're not just invited, you're supposed to be coming as the bride. So sign up. Let's pray. Father, we pray that... <clears throat> we pray that you'd help us to see Christ's identity see who he is, what he is, how he loves, that we would cease seeing him through the, through the judgmental eyes of religion as it is so commonly lived in moralism and self-righteousness and begin to see um, the kind of life and happiness and joy that he's come to bring. And we pray that you would help us through that fall out of love with sin and in love with sinners and to live similarly to you, to have the kind of attitude that we know that you are a doctor who's come for the sick, that you are a groom who has come for his pride. And whatever disciplines we do or whatever people we associate with that we'd see in the light of that gospel, that good news. Would you rise for benediction?